Okay, tonight we will be doing some work on Romans chapter 8. I know we've done work in Romans chapter 8, but we'll be looking at it tonight based off what the curriculum wants us to do with it for our Bible study exercise, which for the next six more weeks on the subject of fear. But they want us to look to Romans chapter 8. Now as a church, or at least here, what I have done, I've done some of, some of the work um, on the podcast, but a lot of it from here. We um, did a lot of work on Psalm 33, which gave us kind of the prerequisites to fear the Lord, right? Um, and so, remember the key verse was Psalm 33, verse 8, which says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Sounds great. Wonderful. That's great. We're supposed to fear God. Everyone is supposed to fear God. But what is required to fear God? It's one thing to tell everyone to fear God, but how do you actually do that? What is a requirement or what are the requirements? And we went through Psalm 33, verse 6 and following, and we gave a list of all the different requirements to fear God. We have to see, understand, accept, believe God as creator, member, sovereign, supreme, all of the different things, omniscient. We went through all of those different things in regards to it. I thought, I thought that was a very important foundation for the study on fear because we answered to me the most fundamental question. Everyone understands fear, fearing God is this thing that's supposed to be so important, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Like, it's supposed to be this super important thing, but exactly how do you do that? So I thought we were answering at least from from my perspective, maybe the most profound question to it all. So we looked at that. Basically, how to fear or what's required to fear the Lord. Now, what the curriculum does is they go from Psalm 33 and they kind of jump to a second kind of question, really. So there the question is, what is required to fear God? We answered it. Even though the curriculum didn't necessarily state it that way, that's the way we kind of worked it. The curriculum for this week took a different turn. They went to Romans chapter 8. And what they are trying to do is basically answer this question. What, what, what should keep us or what should help us or what should uh, replace? What should we replace the wrong kind of fear with? What should we replace the wrong kind of fear or what should help us with the wrong kind of fear? Right? What, what should help us from not fearing what we shouldn't fear? Or what, what, what should give us a sense of security? Or what can we replace insecurity? Or what can we replace fear with? They don't, they don't necessarily clearly identify the question they're trying to answer, but that's the best I can come up with. But, but it got me thinking, and as I've been thinking about it and looking at the passage in Romans, I'm like, wow, there is... There's a lot here. So I want to start this way tonight. I really want us to try to put our thinking caps on and see if we can figure this out. Because you know I always have to come up with a different... I always have to look at it somehow from a different perspective, which always gets me in trouble. But that's okay. Because, I mean, I mean, I can give you the standard sermons on fear that everyone else gives, and what's the point, right? I mean, we've all heard them a million times. I think sometimes you have to continue to dig into the subject. So we remember we identified early on in our study... We use the Bible dictionary and we identify that there is a right kind of fear, right? And the right kind of fear is what? Reverence, awe, 
respect, correct? And we identify the different areas of life where we need the correct kind of fear. Yes, child to parent, wife to husband, slave to master, and us to government, and us to God, right? We talked about all that. That's, that's very important, okay? We didn't really identify too much of what the wrong kind, wrong kind of fear is, right? We, we know that we could have, and this is important, the right kind of fear to the wrong thing, right? In other words, if you gave reverence, respect, and awe to an idol, right kind of fear, wrong thing, correct? So we, know, we nev- definitely know, but we didn't really go into what is the wrong kind of fear? What, 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 are we, what are we not to fear? Now, we did talk about one thing we're not to fear. What is one thing we're not supposed to fear? Other people. We're not supposed to fear people. All right? We're supposed to fear God. Because God has eternity in his hands where people only have what? The temporal. People only, only have in their hands the temporal. God has the eternal, so we should always fear that which has the eternal in his hands. Okay, that makes sense. All right, what are some other things that you would say? So we're not supposed to fear people. So we haven't really talked about the wrong kind of fear yet, but we're talking about the things we're not supposed to fear. All right, so the wrong, we're not supposed to fear people. What are some other things we're not supposed to fear? Do you think that you would hear as a Christian? Well, you shouldn't fear that. What are some other things you think that you would hear in a church saying, hey, you sh- you're a Christian, you shouldn't fear that? What do you think? Well, I think most Christians say we shouldn't fear death, right? Wouldn't that be a common thing Christians would say? Right? Okay. What would be some other things? Some would say we shouldn't fear trial, tribulation, and pain, right? Some would kind of go along those directions, right? Some would kind of go those directions. Um, but, uh, and, and typically, anytime you have any kind of fear, people will typically say within Christianity something along these lines. You need to replace that fear with faith. Right? That's the comment. We heard this through the entire pandemic, right? That as Christians, replace fear with faith. Replace fear with faith. Our faith removes all fear. So there we shouldn't fear a pandemic. We shouldn't. There's always these things we're not supposed to fear. Now, but let's, let's consider, this is a pretty common teaching within Christianity, right? That we are not to fear. God does not give us a spirit of fear. Where is that? Where is that first? Who can find it first? Who can find it first? Uh, let's see, who can find it? We know it's in the New Testament. Uh, definitely Paul. All right, who can find it first? Who can find it first? Who can find it first? If I find it, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to make you find it. Is, it, is that it? All right. 2 Timothy 1.7. 2 Timothy 1.7 reads, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Now that sounds good. You're not to have a spirit of fear. So typically, 
If a Christian expresses any kind of fear, right, they may get that placed upon them almost like a law. How dare you? God has given you a spirit, not a spirit of fear, but one of power. So stop being afraid. Now, that sounds good, right? That's, that's, it does sound good. I mean, that, I mean, I guess it depends on the person, right? Some people, that may become what? That may become a, 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 almost a terrifying verse because they are filled with lots of fear and anxiety and they never live up to it and they always fall short of it and they just can't. Now, other people don't have that many fears or doesn't have that many anxiety and they're like, well, absolutely, God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. I don't fear anything. A lot of times that just comes with our own natural personalities, right? Everyone has their own natural personalities. Some people are afraid of everything. Some people are not. Now, the key is, when it says it doesn't give us a spirit of fear, what, like what, how do we understand that? Because let's just think about this logically, right? Just think about this logically. Here's a Christian, right? You're a Christian. Now, let's, let's just be honest. Does being a Christian and does the Christian life protect you from horrible, disabilitating, painful disease? No. All right, so you could be afraid of that and it would be a rational fear because it could happen. Does being a Christian protect you from horrible crime? Rape, murder, kidnapping, shooting, mugging, robbery, home invasion, carjacking? And the answer is no, it doesn't protect you from that. So you could have a concern and now, now here's the issue. Now, this is the question. If you have a concern about possible getting a horrible disease or some horrible violent crime happening to you, does that violate that scripture? Hey, God's not giving you a spirit of fear. He's giving you a spirit of power. Some Christians would say yes. Others would say no. Well, let's think of some other things. Does being a Christian protect you from natural disasters? Hurricane, flood, famine, pestilence? Some people will quote one of the Psalms to try to say it does, but we know it doesn't, right? Christians suffer all of the... So basically, all of the things that can, that can induce fear on almost anyone's life, we don't have any guaranteed protection from that. But yet, it's preached so many times, you should not fear. So is that the right way to look at it? I don't. I just want you to consider what is that verse telling you? God did not give you a spirit of fear. At what point do you like? Wait a minute. I'm fearing when God did not give me a spirit of fear. So that would seem to indicate that your fear is arising from a wrong source. That somehow you're you're wrong. You're you're going against the spirit that's been given to you. That would imply that that could heap a lot of guilt and sin upon someone, could it not? So how do we understand this? Well. As I said, the curriculum wants us to say, hey, here's fear, but we can replace that fear. This would be like this fear about all of these other kinds of things. We can replace it with some kind of security, but we got to be very careful here, right? Because the security we can replace it cannot be a security that I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to get killed by a drunk driver. I'm not going to die of cancer. I'm not going to be murdered. None, not, no, no, Christianity provides you no comfort for that. Now, some people will say, well, nothing's going to happen uh, outside of the sovereign will of God. Well, that may be true, but guess what? 
<laughs> it could be the sovereign will of God. So I don't know. I don't know how that's supposed to bring me so comfort. I will not die until God. And then it, I, okay, well, <laughs> I don't know. Like I, it's over, right? Like I, I, I listen. Nothing, I will not die until it's God's will, and then I die on the way home. So, like, I, I, I don't know how that's supposed to bring me any true comfort because I don't know when it's going to be, do you? And I don't know what it's going to be of. I, look, there's certain ways I don't want to die. To me, drowning looks like a horrible way to go. Fire looks like a horrible way to go. Cancer, in fact, always look like a horrible way to go, okay? I don't want any of them, all right? Does that mean I, wait a minute, he didn't give me a spirit of fear. Am I violating scripture? How do we understand it? So I thought it was fascinating. So that's what I've been trying to figure out all week. Okay, wait a minute. So what can I fear and when does it become the wrong kind of fear? Right? That's it. And And the best we've kind of come up with is obviously any fear that would cause us to sin, compromise our faith, is really where you get into the, to the, the, the problems. But I thought it was fascinating that the passage of Scripture that the curriculum wanted us to look at was Romans chapter 8. I've just been looking at it and trying to figure it out and trying to figure it out because I've, I've just been baffled by it, all right? So let's look at it. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and, and there's so much here I want to look at. Um, uh, let's see here. Well, okay, we'll just go Romans chapter. Well, I, I, there were, I was going to look at two different verses, but that's okay. So we're, we're in Romans chapter 8. Now, if we were to, let's, let's do this. Let's do this as a test. Because we've spent about four years in Romans now, so you guys are, are experts on it. Uh, when you when come to Romans chapter 8, from chapter 1 to chapter 8. Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 8. For the most part, I understand we could find an exception here, an exception there. But what's the primary focus and the primary theme of Romans from chapter 1 to chapter 8? What would you think the primary focus is? Romans chapter 1 to chapter 8. Romans 1 to chapter 8. Please don't tell me we have to go back and start over the entire book of Romans. That would be really, 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 really sad. Okay. That would be, that would be horrible. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Justification is the main focus, right? How are we saved? And what's the main focus? We are saved by faith apart from works. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith, and clearly imputed righteousness is implied throughout the, uh, the early parts of it, yes? Even though there's some confusing things, like we're going to be judged according to our works, and there's a lot of things going on, but I, I think you could say the primary focus is on what? Salvation. It's on salvation. I don't think there's, I don't think anyone would read Romans 1 to 7 and go, I think this book is about how to overcome your problems in your life or, or how God's going to fix all of your problems. No, the prob- what's, what's the key problem uh, outlined in Romans chapters 1, 2, and parts of 3? Sin, clearly, right? And what's the solution to fix that problem? Christ, right? I think that's a very good way of looking at it. The problem in Romans is that everyone is what? A sinner guilty before a holy God. 
And, they, and what we realize is that the law won't save us. Our works won't save us. Nothing will save us except for Christ. And what we would refer to as an, or Luther would refer to as an alien righteousness, or we would refer to as an imputed righteousness versus an infused righteous, righteousness or any other perspective that could be thrown out there, right? That's what it's about. Now, I want you to think, now, this is important. So then here, here comes the question. And, and, this is, and this is important. How does salvation, or what does salvation have to do with fear? Because, and, and listen to me, this is very important. I think when churches preach about fear, it typically turns into not fearing these bad things or these bad things happening in your life because God is greater than those things and God will give you everything you need and and it's always preached in such a way that, hey, God's going to take care of you. God is going to protect you. But we all know the reality is Christians suffer. Tragedy happens all the time in the life of believers which I think sometimes when tragedy hits the life of believers, they don't know how to handle it because they've all basically been taught their whole life that God's going to take care of this and God's going to take care of this and God's going to take care of that. And then you're devastated because you're like, where is God? So I wonder if we should look at fear, not in light of practical things like, I I shouldn't be worried about this or God's going to take care of this, but maybe salvation is the is the filter in which we are to understand fear. Which means the thing we're not to fear would have to have some correlation to salvation itself. That, that's, that's at least how I'm thinking. That's my theory, right? Now let's look at the text, Romans 8, and you'll see why I'm, I'm thinking this way, all right? Okay, here we go. Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All right, now, this is a key, I think this is a key verse in all of this, right? I think this is a key verse. Because some people would say, hey, what are you, what are you afraid of? All things are going to work together for good, Right? And how is that typically meant when Christians say that? Don't be afraid. All things are going to work together for good. That somehow the situation is going to make your life better. It's going to be better. Like right now, your house may be in flame, your house may be burned down, and your child may have cancer, but all things work together for good. You're going to get a better house, and your child's going to be healed. But in some cases, you end up homeless, and your child dies. Correct? So we know there is a major problem with that perspective. So let's do this. Let's just, uh, 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 we've worked on this before, but let's, right now we're going to look at it in light of this subject of fear. Okay, if we take this verse, first it's limited to who this applies to, yes? And who does this apply to? Who does this apply to according to that verse? Look at Romans 8, 28. All right, the called and those who love God, right? So, so clearly this is a reference to whom? 
to believers. So first of all, this is only for believers. This is only for believers. Correct? Now, immediately, this starts giving us a clue. If this is only for believers, well, then immediately we know we've, this begins to challenge how we define the word good, right? Because if God works all toge- things together for good for the Christian, well then, and we, we reduce that to something very practical, then for every Christian, everything should always be working out great for us. We're lost people. Things should not be working out so good. And we know it doesn't work that out in a practical way. So that good now seems to have a different meaning maybe than what we think, right? All right, so we know it's for believers, and I think this good has to be looked at in a very, not in a practical way. I think this good relates to, and I'm going to throw my theory out, you ready? I think the good is in reference to salvation, And salvation is the answer to fear, but not fear in regards to practical things. I will try to put this all together, all right? Now, it starts out, go back to Romans 8, 28, the very first part of the verse. How's the first first part of the verse read? And we know all things. Now, what things do you think it's referencing? Well, remember what the chapter's all about? Well, a good portion of the chapter, uh, we can't say the whole chapter, but at least the, the section before, starting in verse 18. Well, we could, all, uh, we could go back, we could go to verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also glorify together. Suffering gets introduced there, does it not? It gets introduced there. But, but please note, it's connect, the suffering is connected with our being with Christ. We're a co-heir with Christ. We're in Christ, right? Uh, going all the way back to chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So the suffering is connected with us being in Christ. Then from that point, ver, from verse 18 down to 27, look at what it's all about. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with what? The glory that shall be revealed in us. Now, immediately, this is important. What is the suffering contrasted with? The glory to come. Not the suffering is contrasted with the good things that's going to come in this life, but with the glory to come. You see the contrast? In life, what can we encounter? Suffering. What are we, what's our hope? Glory. That, that's a very interesting contrast, is it not? Next verse. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifest, manifestation of the sons of God. That's Romans 8, verse 19. Do, you, do y'all remember all of our conversations about this and our study? All right, this is very important now because now we're going to connect it to the subject of fear. I'm going to read it from, a, another, uh, from another translation, Romans 8, uh, verse 19. For the creature eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Now, what, what, what is this referencing? We're waiting for something. We're waiting for something. And the something is the sons of God being revealed. This is some ultimate fulfillment, yes? Now, in other words, what do we have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Suffering. What are we looking for? 
The eternal glory, the end of suffering. Please note the contrast. Right? Next verse. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, but by reason of him who hath subject him the same in hope. We've been subjected to what? Well, it says uh, vanity, right? Okay. Um, for the, cre- the, creature, the creation was subject to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected in the hope. Now, there's hope there, but listen, we, we didn't ask for this, right? Did you ask to be placed in a world where there's suffering and futility? No, that was placed upon us. But there was hope involved in it. And what's the hope? Right? Look, uh, because the creature itself also shall be delivered uh, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's for some ultimate glory. Not here. So the good can't be good here. The good has to refer, refer to salvation. So far, so good. All right. Verse 22. For we know it that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto now. Well, the whole creation groans. Everyone's groaning, right? We groan just like the rest of the planet. Why? We have sinful, we have bodies that are corrupted. We have a world that's corrupted. And guess what the world is filled with? Suffering. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. He, he makes it clear. Not only does the, the non-Christian groan, who else groans? We do. But what's the difference between us and them? We have hope. See the verse? We have hope. He says, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown with ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. Now, again, what's the hope? Not that all things are going to work, to work together good in this life. What is the hope? The redemption of the body. Because when the body is redeemed, right, then what, what happens? No more pain. No more sin. No more death. Now, immediately, if we connect this to fear, what does this mean? In the meantime, while we're groaning and suffering, there may be fear and anxiety of some level. Now, I, I know people are going to say, well, Jesus says, don't worry about this and don't worry about that. I do agree that it would be great if we didn't. And I do believe that's his standard. But we're going to fall short of it. We're going to fall short of it all the time to some way, shape, or form. Because here's the thing. For every Christian... Your theology, this is, I cannot stress this enough. If you are a Christian, here's what your theology must declare. In this life, there will be pain and there will be suffering throughout the entire thing. And my hope is not that the pain, that God is going to intervene in that pain and suffering on this side of glory, but that he will ultimately step in, in glory. That, that, that you've got to embrace that. Like, like that, that was a major thing I didn't understand as a young Christian. I'm like, okay, I'm serving God. I'm not selling drugs now. I'm not doing drugs. I'm doing all this wonderful stuff. I'm not carrying a satanic Bible. I'm carrying my Bible to school. And my mom's dead? Okay, what? Wait, wait, wait. What? Wait, this is, who signed up for this garbage? My, so when I'm doing bad stuff, my mom's alive. When I become a Christian, my mom dies. 
No, this, this doesn't make sense. Because I was looking at it in almost a transactional way, right? But my theology should be, no, 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 no. You become a Christian, your life is going to be filled with the same pain and suffering that everyone else's life is filled with. Okay? And then, for we are saved by hope. But hope that it seems is not hope for what man seeth, what doth he yet hope for? We, we're saved by a hope, but it's a hope that we don't see. We can't see it. Hey, we, we, it's not like, oh, oh, wait, oh, my, this is going to get better and I'm going to get that job and I'm going to get that money and I'm going to get that car and I'm going to get this and I'm going to get that. No, the, our hope is somewhere in glory. Th- this is so key. And this has to be understood before we get to verse 28. All right, verse 25. But if we hope for what we see not, then do we... Uh, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now immediately that tells me something in verse 26. What does verse 26 tell you? What does it tell you? It tells me that I'm going to suffer in this life. I'm going to suffer. But what's the good news? The Spirit is, it doesn't even say helping me with my suffering. He's just going to help me to vocalize and voice my pain to God. Because there's times I don't even know how to express it. I don't know how to say it. I don't know what to say. But I know somehow the Spirit is communicating with God going, this guy is in some serious pain and suffering. That, I guess that's good news. Now, it may not be the news I want, right? It may not be what I want. Because I don't want him just to tell God I'm suffering. I want him to make the suffering go away. But this is not telling me the suffering is going to go away. Not until when? Glory. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth he that it, what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now this brings us to verse 28. So, for and we know that all, now all things, now we know the all things. What's the all things? All the suffering. We know that all things work together for good. Now, okay, what good? What's the good? Well, the good can't be that's going to make all the situations in life better because clearly what's the hope in the previous section? Eternal. So that means the good would have to be defined with what kind of good? A temporal good or an eternal good? An eternal good. And if it's an eternal good, it has to be connected to what? Salvation. So we know that all things, all suffering works together and has something to do with our eternal salvation in some way, shape, or form. Then immediately we know who it's working good for. Who is it working the good for? To them that love God, to them who called according to his purpose. Now what purpose is that? What purpose is that? Look at the next verse. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Those who are called according to his purpose are those who are called to what? God's eternal purpose of salvation. This is God's eternal purpose of salvation. And what does, what does our eternal purpose of salvation end with? Which equals what in that passage? Well, after the good, he mentions something else, that those who are called according to his purpose, and then he talks about what we are called to in the next verse. Conform to his image. When are you going to be conformed to his image? And glorification. So now we see how it works. Here's the suffering, right? Does suffering bring fear and insecurity and concern and anxiety? Yes. What is my hope? That that's going to go away? Not in the temporary, temporary, but my hope is what? Eternal glory. And that eternal glory, all things work together. All things work together in this eternal glory, right? All things work together in this eternal glory to do what? To bring, well, to, ultimately for my glorification, ultimately for my conforming to the image of Christ. So all of these things all the suffering and all the pain is all working and connected to my ultimate salvation. Think about it this way. I have been saved. That's justification. I have been saved. I am being saved in the work that's happening in my life now. And what does God use in that work now? Suffering. And I will be saved glorification, and what will be the end result of that glorification? Conform to the image of Christ. But what, what is, what is, what's working in the process to conform me now? Suffering. All things work to good. That good is eternal salvation. Called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? My salvation. Past, present, future, and that future ends with my, my being conformed to the image of Christ. And all of God's eternal purpose involves what? What are, what of these eternal purposes involves what? Well, let's, let's look at them. It, it lays it all out, right? We call this the golden chain, right? He foreknew, right? We have God's foreknowledge, right? Foreknowing. We have God predestinating. We have God Calling, we have God justifying, and we have God glorifying. That's all God. That's all God. Now, please, foreknowing means he knows exactly those whom he's going to save. He doesn't learn about them. He knows them. He's known them for how long? Eternity. We can connect the knowledge here with election, right? Okay, then then what does he do? He predestinates them because he knows, but now he's predetermining something about them. And those he knows, he predestines, next part. He calls, clearly this is a different call than the general call. This is an effectual call because the people he calls, he justifies, all right? Clearly this is a different call than the call that goes out to everyone. This is a different call because these people who are called are justified, and those he justifies, he glorifies. Now, immediately, this means this. In life, there's going to be pain, there's going to be suffering. Yes? 
And there's going to be some fear, some worry, some anxiety. Now, yes, I understand that that fear and anxiety can be sinful, right? Because if it leads us to doubt God or make bad decisions or go against God's word, it can be detrimental. Everyone understand that? But the solution to it isn't God's going to fix all of my problems. He's going to intervene. No, 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 no. The solution is, here's what I do know. No matter how bad things get, what do I know? God has foreknown me since eternity past. He has predestinated me. He has called me. He has justified me. And he will absolutely glorify me. And what else do I know? That all the things happening have an eternal purpose, and everything's eternal purpose is what? Not my comfort, not my happiness, not my joy, but my salvation. I replace fear with the security of God's eternal plan of salvation. Because that's the only thing I can hold on to. Everything in this world, is there any certainty in anything in this life? No. No certainty. Life is ruled by uncertainty. here's Here's what governs our life. You ready? Uncertainty. Suffering. Okay, that, that's, what, that's what governs our life. Uncertainty and suffering. Aren't you glad you came to church, right? What, what, what did you learn? My life is governed by uncertainty and suffering. Well, that was a very encouraging thing. What's the only thing that is, I'm certain of? God's eternal work of salvation. And how certain is his, his eternal work of salvation? Absolutely certain. Why is it absolutely certain? Because it started when? Eternity passed, and it's all dependent upon whom? Not me. And he takes everything that happens in this life, it's used and connected to what? Our salvation. Not our happiness, not our joy. Do not connect all things work together for good as related to your happiness, your joy. It's your eternal glorification. It's your eternal salvation. All right, next verse. What shall we say then to these things? What things? I think it's necessarily to the suffering. What do I say to all this suffering? What do I say to all this uncertainty? What do I say to all this pain? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, how is that typically played out? Hey, hey, you know, we're getting ready to play a football game. If God is for us, who can be against us? I've heard that quoted in some sporting situations. That's ridiculous, right? Or I've seen UFC fighters or boxers. If God is for me, who can be against me? And then they get knocked out. So that doesn't really work. So that's not what it's about. I've heard uh, nations say, our army, we're going to go fight this war. And if God is for us, who can be? It has nothing to do with that. Right? I've seen it, uh, uh, people having some problem with their boss at work. If God is for me, who can just stop quoting scripture? Okay? It has nothing to do with any of that. What does it mean? If God is for me, none of these things can have, it can be against me in what way? 
They cannot stop my eternal glorification. They cannot stop my eternal salvation. People quoted over the most foolish things. This whole, the whole book is about salvation. I don't know how this gets ripped so far out of its context. All right? Then note this, note, note, note this all right? And, and so then you'll, you'll please note, you're going to know exactly what he's referring to. What should we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? How do we know that God is for us? Do we know God, do you know God is for you because you get a pay raise, because you get a new car, because your kid gets better, because you get healed? No. How do I know God is for me? Verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I know God is for me because of what happened in Jesus Christ. And when he says he's going to give us freely all things, what things is he referring to? Well, all things pertaining to our eternal salvation is, the, I think, the focus point here. You could say all spiritual blessings which we have in Christ, which would be absolutely fair to say. But I think in this context, what things, what, what, what is he given to me? I have his foreknowledge, his predestination, his calling, his justification, and his glorification. And everything that relates to that. And my being conformed to what? The image of his son. Isn't that what the whole section is about? That is what I think he's referring to. And verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Please note, this has, see, this has nothing to do with all of your problems getting better. This is about, look, and suffering. Here's what happens. Why do you think in the middle of this, why do you think in the middle of this section, Paul would write those words? I think this is a, a, a fascinating question, all right? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Why would he throw that in there? Does that seem odd to you? Who, who, could, who, could, who could make any accusation against you? Who can make any charge against you? Isn't it weird that that's where it shows up? In the broader context, why do you think he's placing that there? Why do you think he's placing it there in, in its broader context? Oh, come on. This is like the million-dollar question. You get this right, you, you win a new car or something, okay? This is, this is, like, this is so important. I'm going I'm I'm to open up the Spreaker app just to make sure nobody else is trying to answer this. Because this is worth all the money in the world, okay? Nobody, nobody's even trying, all right? Why do you think? All right. I'll help you out. We've been working through this whole section, right? Well, the previous section before this section is all about what? Suffering. Haven't we all agreed upon that? And then he gives us all this good news that all of this suffering ultimately works towards our eternal salvation, yes? Which culminates in our glorification or our being conformed to the image of Christ. So all this suffering is working on conforming us and leading us there. And so our hope is not that things are going to get better in our life, but ultimately we have this hope that everything's going to work out in the end, that we're going to be glorified. Well, guess what? Guess what happens in the meantime before we get to that glorification, before we get to that experiencing that glory? We're suffering, right? And what do we have a tendency to do in suffering? 
complain, anger, depression, bitterness, frustration, making unspiritual choices. Uh, maybe, maybe we deny Jesus three times because Peter seemed not to want to suffer, did he? He, 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 got, he did. And like, hey, no, no, I don't know the man. I don't know the guy, right? Okay, we have a tendency to do what? Sin, right? And like, come on, let me, let me, let's see what, just imagine this scene, okay? You, not this church, because we're all broken and messed up people here, so we're, we're good in this church. But if you walk into another church, right? You walk in, you got a mean look on your face, and people are like, well, how are things going? You want to know how things are going? My life is trash. My life is garbage. I'm sick of it. And you just like, you just start letting, just letting it go. And maybe you say some bad words. Guess what most people will do in church if you did that? They question your salvation. What does Paul say? What does Paul say here? Look at that verse. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Why would he say that? Because sometimes God's elect go through some really bad times in life. And sometimes when you go through really bad times in life, I don't know, everyone talks about how wonderful Job was. Job had some pretty strong, pretty strong statements in his suffering, did he not? What are some things Job said that would shock people? I wish I was dead. I wish I was never born. Oh man, let other Christians hear you say that. I wish I was dead. I wish I was They'd be like, oh, you better, you, you better not speak that into existence. You need a positive confession of faith. Oh, I know I hate that with every ounce of my being. I know, I, I, I despise it. I, oh, I know, the speaking, I know. Oh, don't. It drives me so crazy. I can't speak it into existence. I can't speak it into existence. I, I, I would, like, I'd have this argument with people at work all the time because it was common for me to say when I got ready to go to lunch, I'm going to go to lunch and I'm going to get hit by a car. I'm probably going to get paralyzed. I'm gonna, I would just say something. And then all the charismatics would be like, oh, how dare you say that? You're going to speak it into existence. I'm like, if I could speak things into existence, why would I be coming to work? Because I already would have spoken a million dollars into existence and I wouldn't even know you. Okay, <laughs> leave me alone. I wouldn't have seizures, okay? Leave me alone. All right, so yeah, that, that stuff is just nonsense. Well, the point is, even as believers, we can suffer. Now, I know in church we're supposed to say, I'm doing better than I deserve. Praise God. I trust. I know you're supposed to give all the little, you know, cliches, like you have one of those, you know, those great encouraging posters you put on your office wall, okay, you know, all, you know, the little kitten, hang in there, you can do it, all the guard, just all that stuff, just, ugh, all that stuff, okay, right, we're all right, <laughs> but yeah, all the stuff people say, okay, but the point is, we suffer, yes, and suffering can lead us to making horrible decisions, just, just discouragement. Just with discouragement. If you get discouraged enough, do you have a tendency to do some really bad things, maybe spiritually speaking? Yeah, you get discouraged. Hmm, that's a bad place to be in spiritually. That's a bad place. You just start questioning like, who cares what I do? Who cares? What, what difference does it make? Who cares? That's a bad place to be. 
And we do bad things and we do foolish things. I find it fascinating that's in the middle of that that he says, guess what? Read the verse. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. I can, now this, this goes straight to fear because sometimes we may fear what other people say about us. We may fear their judgment. We may fear their opinion. You know what? Say whatever you want about me. You, didn't just, you don't justify me and you don't condemn me. You just have your opinion of me. God justifies me and I am justified not by what you think I'm justified by. I'm justified by what? Imputed righteousness. Now, I'm not saying this means we don't listen to godly rebuke or godly correction. I'm not saying that. But godly correction and godly rebuke is not talking about you. It's not talking about you, and it's not condemning you. It would be talking to you, and it would, uh, its goal would be to help you and to restore you and to love you and to get you back where you belong, not just say, you're a piece of trash, now go die. Okay, There's a big difference between godly rebuke and just the garbage people want to throw at you with their rocks, okay? But we, that, that, that takes away fear. You know, what, you know what fear that removes from me? Is that when I'm suffering, uh, that my, my emotions or my feelings or my words doesn't condemn me because it is God who justifies me. What is my salvation based upon? God's eternal plan. And guess what doesn't, uh, doesn't destroy God's eternal plan? My sin. Who is he that condemneth? That's a good question. Who's the person who condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? And then he ends with these powerful words. For what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Please note, this is referring to believers who are doing what? Suffering! And does Paul say, hey guys, all things work together for good. No, the all things work together for good is you may suffer and you may die, but what's the ultimate good? It's in that suffering, God is working out his eternal salvation and your eternal glorification, including your conformity to his son. Nay, and all these things were more than conquerors. Now, when it says we're more than conquerors, we're more than conquerors in what way? How do most Christians preach this? That I have power and I can overcome this and I can overcome doubt and I can overcome despair and I can overcome depression and I, and I can overcome any obstacle and I can overcome anyone. No, what, I'm more than a conqueror in what way? I, I'm a conqueror in him, but what am I conquering here? I'm a conqueror because what cannot, nothing can do what? Take away my eternal salvation. This is about salvation. I'm more than a conqueror in my salvation. Pain, suffering, death, famine, disease, nothing can take away my salvation because it is a work of God alone that started when? 
and eternity past with his foreknowledge, his election. And then, it, and then he predestined me, and then it predestinated me, and then in time he called me, and then he justified me, and he will glorify me. I'm more than a conqueror because nothing, literally nothing, can overcome that, can thwart that, can destroy that, can stop it. It has no power over me in any way, shape, or form. Does that, does that make sense? And then the next part. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor even things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate me from what? His love. I can't separate myself from his love because his love, his electing love, because we know there's a general love for the whole world, this is an electing love, was given to me when? Before I was even born. Nothing can separate me from that. Nothing. My sin can't. Your accusations against me can't. Your opinions of me can't. All the suffering in this world can't. So guess what? We can replace fear with security. But the security we replace fear with is the security in God's eternal salvation and that anything happens to me is working for that salvation for that glorification, for me being conformed to the image of Christ. It does not mean that my, I replace my insecurity, my fear, with some idea that God's going to fix all of my problems, take away my diseases, and make everything better. Because it doesn't work that way. I wish it did. But the minute you think that way, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. So, we'll circle back. Psalm 33 gave us the prerequisites for fear. Yes? Romans 8, that's 28 to 36, correct? We looked at every verse and we looked at the context. Romans 8, 28 to 36 gives us what? What we can replace fear with which is the security of God's eternal salvation and that whatever happens is connected to that. We do not replace fear with some horrible notion and idea that our problems are just going to get better and that everything, we're going to overcome all of our problems. No. We're going to struggle. We're going to have difficulty. And we're going to suffer. Because it's a part of life. Because we live in a fallen world. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. I pray this will give us a better perspective on fear and one that is biblical, theological, and I think one that is according to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said.